Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Scott Alford. He is one of the top online business mentors and advisors, and he also owns dozens of businesses that have collectively generated tens of millions of dollars. And this done in multiple niches, countries across the world, and so forth. In his new Investing with Scott newsletter, he gives you a behind-the-scenes look into acquiring, building, and scaling businesses based on his experience of helping hundreds of entrepreneurs scale all the way up to seven and eight figures. As an entrepreneur, since he was seven, and by the time he was 16, having a million-dollar business, while ending up a million in debt and now by 31 becoming a decamillionaire, he has a massive amount of insights, understandings, knowledge, and wisdom for scaling and building a business. You can now check what he's up to by going into investing.scottalford.com. If you're an entrepreneur or a sales leader, you want to listen to this. Let me tell you about Wingman. Not, no, no, not Tom Cruise. Wingman is a conversation intelligence tool that helps folks like you coach and scale up their sales teams really fast, really easy. Now, I know you know scaling is not just about hiring. Getting the team up to speed can be the real speed bump. Well, Wingman can help you in getting that. It lets you build call libraries with game tapes relevant to every sales situation, complete with highlights and notes, and it's Asynchronous, I mean, repeatable sales training engine. Not just that, Wingman even helps during sales calls with contextual battle cards and monologue alerts. The great thing about Wingman is that it plays nice with all your existing tools like Salesforce, HubSpot, Zoom, Teams, and Google. It even syncs up with Slack so you don't have to log into your CRM all the time for deal updates. So head over to trywingman.com to give it a try. That is T-R-Y-W-I-N-G-M-A-N.com is just the wingman your sales needs to really predictably beat revenue targets quarter after quarter. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder. He's founded multiple companies, uh, gone through all the different cycles, building, scaling, financing, even exiting two of them. Uh, so I think that we're going to be learning quite a bit. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Aaron Deveboys. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Alejandro. I'm really excited to talk to your audience and you. So originally uh, born and raised in New York City. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Yeah, I mean, I, I actually grew up in uh, Westchester County outside of New York City um, in a suburb, which was really a fantastic place to grow up. Public schools were really good. It gave me a lot of opportunity to play a lot of sports and and try new things. I think most importantly, my household environment uh, when I was growing up was really focused on kind of learning about what was happening in and around the world. Um, we talked around the dinner table all the time. Um, and really, my whole family were, was a family of entrepreneurs. So I got to hear all these great stories about you know, starting companies, things that went wrong, things that went right. And it got me so excited that I, even as a kid, I had started a couple of businesses that just gave me this bug of, of building new things and, and, and kind of relating data 
to how to build new things just through the idea of learning about history um, and seeing how what decisions went right and what went wrong. So I loved really my environment. And in fact, I mean, you went on to study economics. So would you say that that was kind of like influenced by what you were seeing around in your family? Because in your family, I mean, obviously you had the entrepreneurial, uh, you know, mindset and spirit. So give us a little of an insight into what you saw and what did you grow up with? I mean, who around you was building and scaling stuff? It was kind of, it was all my family that was very into talking about new businesses and especially in the entertainment uh, and media space. But specifically, my uncle, um, Alan Debevoise, uh, was a really big influence for me because he was actually out in Los Angeles starting new companies. Um, and in fact, even when I was in college studying economics, I went and joined his company for a, what they call winter break, right? A, a kind of one month opportunity to go do what you wanted to do. Um, and just seeing all of the ups and downs and the how things were okay when things were down and, and when things were really great, you had to really consider to make sure that uh, your team was in great shape and so forth. It was, it was a really great experience. And so going and studying economics for me was really this combination of math, data, science, and history that allowed you to kind of learn, hey, what kind of decision making would you do in certain situations based on everything you know and what you would expect the outcomes to be, but then having to realize that those outcomes might be different for all sorts of variable reasons. Now, in your case, I mean, you had the bug already planted. So why did you go to JP Morgan, to corporate America? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Um, I actually had started a business in college and went through two or three years of just building out that business. And I think that I was feeling like I needed to have a certain level of training around finance and data that I thought JP Morgan would deliver me. What I learned at JP Morgan was that working really hard uh, is, is really important. And, the, and that work ethic that I have, I was able to kind of stay up all night and do big projects. I don't think it was the most productive and, and a, a best approach long term, but it really taught me grit. Um, and then actually within JP Morgan, there was a team that focused on film finance. And that to me was back right to my roots where entertainment mixed with data, mixed with being able to kind of fund something and invest in something that was not so tangible, um, but ended up being a movie that you could go out and see. I just think that was super exciting. So I actually really enjoyed my JP Morgan experience in the film finance division because it was so unique. So. So then tell us, how do you end up realizing that uh, corporate was not for you and, and it's time, you know, to go at it and start something? Yeah, I mean, I, I knew from the day that I, I started in corporate that I wasn't going to be long for it. And frankly, back to my uncle, he had been updating me on the businesses as he was thinking about. And he had, and I was, I did two things. One is, I really wanted to learn more about how movies were being made outside of just financing it. So I actually started a documentary film business that focused on actually action sports. And it taught me just one, how hard it is. And two, a lot of empathy for people that I didn't really even think about before when I was doing financing for films, right? So the editors and the directors and, this, and just all the positions and how hard they are. So it gave me a lot of perspective and then two, after that, my uncle and I decided, 
decided to start a company called Machinima, which was really focused on kind of how are we going to disrupt cable by using platforms like YouTube, the way that cable disrupted broadcast. So that would be in more like kind of niche programming, but on a much more scalable basis because it was global. Um, and so we started that that business, which was focused on creating content for gamers on YouTube, which was not too dissimilar to like MTV creating music videos for, for fans of music. Um, and so that's that's how I decided to make sure I, I actually left JP Morgan um, and in 2000. Uh, five, I guess it was, and and went off now, on my adventure. Now with Machinima, I mean, you definitely experienced the full cycle. Uh, you guys ended up selling the company to um, uh, Warner Brothers. I mean, really amazing uh, outcome, not to such a such an incredible uh, recognized brand. So, what was, I mean, what kind of visibility did you get at that point from? that entire, I mean, what that marathon looks like, not like full visibility into all the different cycles from beginning all the way to the finish line. Yeah, it, it's such a great way to describe it as a marathon. Um, I think one of the things that obviously I went through a marathon, it was, it was I guess, almost uh, uh, over 12 years, right, um, that it took to sell the company. And the experience of uh, even deciding and making sure you're focused on the right area of be, not being distracted by too many shiny objects, as, as I would call it, right, where there's a lot of directions your company can go in, but you've really got to make that decision of going in a specific direction where you're going to be the master of that, of that domain. Um, that was a really important decision for us to say, hey, we are on YouTube. We're going to build the biggest brand for gamers, highly focused. And we knew we could do a lot if we were highly focused, um, but it did take the kind of you know typical war stories that you would expect. I mean, two hundred plus pitches to get our first our Series A financing. And then every financing thereafter was no. It was it was a little bit easier, but it wasn't ever easy. Um, bringing you know going from five people in a room to two hundred and fifty people and managing those people. We even had a situation where people that worked at Machinima actually wanted to be talent on YouTube. And so they were stuck between decisions of like staying with us during this fast growth period or going off on their own. And we had to convince them that we were the right path. Um, and so I think for me, it was, it was a marathon for sure. Had really great, you know, moments and had really difficult moments. Um, and it was hard to leave the company after, after that long, but the beauty of building these companies is that you get to see a lot of insights that other people don't get to see. And so you can spark a lot of new ideas that maybe that led to kind of what I'm doing, you know, today and, and other things that I've done. So, so then let, let's talk about the next one then style hall. So at what point, you know, style hall comes knocking and, and what were you guys doing there? Yeah, no, it, it, it's kind of a, it's almost like an unbelievable story and how simple uh, the idea came to me uh, with is that, I was I was hanging out at the beach uh, with my wife, and I was reading an article in the New York Times about how there were a hundred thousand haulers on YouTube. I had no idea what a hauler was, and it was basically the idea of women shopping and then bringing back the clothes and showing multiple ways of wearing a specific uh, scarf or multiple ways to uh, use a dress and all sorts of things. And I go, wow, that's kind of similar to what gamers are doing at Machinima, right? I mean, gamers were showing off their gameplay. Why wouldn't 
there'd be an, a, a totally new brand out there, not too dissimilar to like maybe Bravo on, on cable. Why isn't that existing on YouTube? Why isn't that more organized? Um, so we started uh, Style Hall to go out and, and create content and, and help content creators who are focused on fashion and beauty. Um, and I didn't actually, I, I wasn't the CEO. I co-founded it with um, the ultimately the CEO, Stephanie Horbachevsky, who did an amazing job building that brand out. And that was sold uh, within four years um, to RTL and was a really big success given kind of how fast it happened. So now entering Sputter. So uh, obviously, as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So how was the idea of Spotter, you know, uh, realized? How did it come about? And, and then how did you go about bringing it to life? Yeah, it's, it, 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 it's, it's a really interesting story because there were these kind of aha moments that happened early on that you think, oh, wow, it sparked this idea and we're going to move really fast. And then it takes a long time to, to take a, an aha moment. So just to give you the example, I was still working at Machinima when I, when I saw that we knew that YouTube had changed its algorithm to focus more on engagement versus viewership. And what that meant was that a lot of creators were creating what we call episodic content, but not episodic in the nature that we all experience, like episode one, two, and three. But in a specific category, they were creating, let's call it baking, right? They were doing recipe one, two, and three. And people were able to go kind of get lost in that viewership versus kind of clicking so many different videos. They would end up getting stuck in a rabbit hole of viewership because they're going, I want to see the next recipe. I want to see the next you know, entertainment video, music video. Um, so we started, I started to see patterns in the content. And I had a specific video called Counter-Strike for Kids, which was a gaming video that had been doing 300,000 views around 300,000 views every month for like three or four years with no marketing, right? And when I saw that, I said, wow, I'm not even sure that the gamer understands that they have that video that continues to create cash flow for these creators. And one of the big problems that creators were facing from the year that I joined building businesses on YouTube, which was 2006, was they really weren't able to invest in themselves and grow their businesses. YouTube was trying to solve the problem of, hey, how do I get creators to realize they can do this as a full-time job? How do I quit my job at literally Olive Garden or something like that and start to be, and be a full-time creator? YouTube did a really good job at that. But I knew that if we had predictable cash flow streams, a company like Spotter could start to provide more capital than just quitting your job and making it by Right. But this capital that would actually allow you to scale very, very quickly with the resources that were obviously obvious in terms of your needs. So this is things as simple as your first editor, right, your first line producer, um, your first writer, um, all these things that creators were doing all on their own. And it was very hard to scale. So that was the kind of the beginning of Spotter. So then what were the uh, what happened next? What were the early days like of Spotter? Yeah. Um, so again, you know, it was like the early days of Machinima, another 200 plus uh, meetings to, to go try raise, raise money and capital for the company and and mostly knows because no one really understood YouTube the way I did. And, and that's what makes starting companies really difficult, right? Your vision is supposed to be new, unique, nothing that anyone's ever done before. And yet you have this kind of inside knowledge that you know it's true. And that's what allowed me to keep 
you know, going forward, I just knew there was a, there was a way to make this happen. Um, it wasn't a hope. It wasn't a kind of a necessarily a dream. It was, it was just like, uh, 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 acceptance that I knew that I could do it. Um, and so in the early days, uh, the first four or five years of spotter, which wasn't even called spotter was really data gathering back to kind of my roots of how do I prove to people that that content on YouTube is predictable enough where we can provide financing to creators by by licensing their their catalogs. Um, and so the first days were really, really hard. Took all, I was not a data scientist by trade, but I became a really like obsessed individual around data. I got great lessons from one one guy, Jeff Jonas, who was the head of IBM Context Computing. And he came in and really taught me about kind of false negatives, false positives, and making sure we the data is really causal, not not just correlated. Um, and it was really fun because you got to see the inner workings of YouTube, and we had to find all the videos on YouTube to go even study them. Um, but fast forward, once we proved it out in 2019, we raised our Series A, which was a small round. I mean, it was maybe $15 million, and but we had raised some debt as well. And that was the beginning of us trying to go out and, and help creators and give creators money, which at first, kind of part of a crazy story is that it was like creators didn't know what to do with the money. They didn't even know what like their libraries were worth. It's like someone asking you to sell your house and no one had ever sold a house before. So that was like in the early days, really hard. We had to, we had to educate our customer base that, hey, here's how to think about the assets that you own. And here's how you're going to be able to use the money. And once we were able to do that, it, it really took off from, from there. This ad is brought to you by ShipStation. I mean, I remember when I was saying, doing my book, my previous book, you know, it was incredible, like how much of a nightmare, you know, like shipping all those books to everyone, you know, during the launch was, was it, was, it was really tough. Now, you know, there's this company, it's called ShipStation that sets you up for growth directly by integrating every shopping cart and storefront so that your products are easier to find, easier to manage, uh, easier to get into the hands of the happy customers. So there's no more limiting your business. You can actually right now maximize your sales and save times with consolidated order management and automated shipping updates for your customers. So ship more and grow with ShipStation. Go to ShipStation.com today and sign up with promo code DEALMAKERS to a free 60-day free trial. Start today and get to set up before the biggest shipping season of the year. That's two months free. Visit ShipStation.com and click the microphone at the top and type in code DEALMAKERS. This episode is brought to you by Partner Hero, which provides customer service outsourcing that's built for the needs of scaling and high-growth startups. They offer flexible terms, fast onboarding, and the ability to scale teams quickly. Perfect for fast-growing businesses. I mean, let's face it, you know, you're all startups. You know, it's time for you to really stop trying to do absolutely everything. You need to get yourself out of the supporting box so you can actually focus on growing your business. So again, Partner Hero is flexible. They have quality assurance. They have offices around the world to really provide that help and support that you need. And if you're ready to bring in outside customer support help for your startup that feels like it's part of your existing team, then check out Partner Hero. Head over to partnerhero.com forward slash dealmakers 
to book a free consultation with our solutions team and mention that you heard about Partner Hero from DealMakers and Dale Wave, the setup fee. So that the people that are listening understand it, like what ended up being the business model of Spotter? How do you guys make money? Yeah, so Spotter, the idea was is not too dissimilar to what's happened in the music industry when there's predictable cash flow streams from content that you've created in the past that there's a financial opportunity for someone to provide you cash now versus waiting for years and years and years to collect that cash. So the concept for for YouTube creators was really interesting because unlike musicians who even if they got a huge windfall of cash, they can't really increase the level of production at which they re release records too fast, right? Whereas YouTube creators could literally go from what I would call zero to one and one and beyond, right? They, like I said, hiring their first editor will increase their output significantly. You know, hiring analytics in, in people would really help them understand what's the next thing to do. Um, so the business model was that, hey, we would come in and buy out the revenue stream of your back catalog or your existing videos so that you can go invest in your future and your future videos would ultimately be 100% yours, right? That you were going to take all the upside of this, of this investment. And then at first, it was a very transactional relationship. It was one and done. Here's the money. But what creators found was that when they did the investment, they were growing three to four times faster than they would have if they didn't do the investment. And so 12 months later, they come back and we do another deal right, for the new content that they created. And then they would go out and create more content and take all the benefit of that content and became much more of a partnership with creators where now we're providing analytics to creators, right? We're providing uh, community to creators. Um, so we're really rooted in data, which is very helpful for creators. And the business model is with creators, we don't actually charge for any of the services we do. We will make money because you're successful. You will always make more money than us. And we'll make money on the back catalog because you're growing, right? And you're growing because we've provided you help. Now, you guys have raised uh, over a billion dollars. I mean, that's a lot of money. So um, I guess, obviously, this is like in a different structure uh, where you have the equity side and then also the debt side. So can you walk us through... How has been the experience raising all that money? And then also why you have that different structure on the equity and debt side for a company like this? So it comes from my background. And, and when I was doing film finance, I actually was doing debt financing. And then obviously with the startups, it was doing equity financing. And you wanted to look at a world where if there was predictable cash flow streams, the, the key to predictable cash flow streams on a, on a platform like YouTube, where there's a lot of volatility, is that you want to buy as many cash flow streams as possible to diversify. So it's not too dissimilar to like portfolio uh, dynamics on buying stocks, right? You don't want to buy one, you want to buy an index or something like that, right? Unless you had really specific information. And so for us to do that, when we raised $15 million in our Series A, that wasn't enough money for us to feel comfortable that we would be able to bet on the right assets. Right. So we had to say, hey, is there another instrument that would allow us to do a lot more than buy a lot more than $15 million? And when debt was was brought in, the idea was, hey, we would put up some of the equity on each transaction and the debt would put up some of the money. So, so it's not too similar to your house. Right. And therefore, you can buy more. Um, and so we raised a $50 million debt facility at the time in the Series A. And we were able to deploy $60 million 
And we had some really good wins and we had some really interesting losses. COVID had just happened. Our first channel that we ever bought was a travel channel to about going to Vegas. And then COVID hit and there's no one going to Vegas. And so it was a complete disaster in terms of our predictions. But we had had bought a bunch of other assets that one of them was a travel channel around more experiential uh, travel, right? So going to Africa and going to all different types of places that were almost like where you would want to go after COVID rather than where you were going on that weekend. And that did really well. So the the investors started to see these dynamics of portfolio really working. Um, and then it was all about, well, imagine you were had all of YouTube, you would be in good shape. So how much of YouTube and how many creators can we provide financing for? Well, it's endless, right? So let's do as much as we possibly can because the more we buy, the safer we're going to get. Um, and the more, and when we can buy a lot, it actually allows us to pay each creator more money, right? Because any individual asset is so risky that we could never afford to give them as much as we can give them if we knew we were going to have a portfolio of $500 million. Now, let, let, let's talk about re resilience for, for, for a little bit here. So I know that, you know, you guys have gone, you know, like you, you've gone through the ups and downs. Aaron and 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 you went all the way up to experience, you know, having you know a bunch of people, and then all of a sudden having to reduce to four people, and now you know here you are again, you know, over a hundred people already. So, what happened there? Like, what happened from going up to going down to going up again? And 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 who did you need to be in those circumstances so that you were able to really become and be effective? in front of whatever you had in front of you. Like you said earlier on, these are marathon uh, jobs, right? The starting companies, and you really don't know what's, what's ahead. There are outside factors. There are factors that you might have missed, that I've missed. So beginning, the beginning was really much, was really about gathering data and, and then using that data to go out and experiment and try to acquire assets and prove to people that there is a business model here. That took a really long time, a lot longer than I ever thought. I mean, finding every video on YouTube sounds sounds like a lot, but it's also like you think, oh, you can go on a whiteboard and and talk about categories. So, oh, there must be Olympic sports videos and that's swimming and so forth. It's impossible to do a whiteboard of all the categories on YouTube. It's, you know, 80, 100 million categories. And so it was a lot of exploration. The beginning was... Hey, I think in the next quarter or in the next half year, I can do X. And you would find out it would take you a full year or a year and a half to do that. Um, so it was really hard to manage, you know, how many people you're supposed to have, how many can you afford, especially when you're not generating revenue yet. Um, and so we got all the way up to a point where we were buying individual videos on YouTube and we needed a huge organization to go out and reach out to people. Um, so we had 75 people and ultimately, that we weren't able to to figure out the formula early on that gave us enough profit to to actually you know support that kind of system and so i was i got to a point where i was working in the office every day, uh every day and every night i was actually sleeping in the office um thinking that 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 putting all my energy would be the solution because i had been trained to do that an investment banking, right? Really think, saying, "Hey, if I just put more time into it and more effort, I'm gonna, I'm gonna win." Um, and that turned out to not be true. 
it was actually exhausting. I wasn't thinking as clearly as I am, uh, obviously today. And so it took a reset for us to look at the numbers, accept the things that didn't work, um, still believe obviously based on the data that, Hey, this should work and this will work. So it was bat rooted in data and rooted in this mission to help creators, right? If we can help creators by giving them capital and knowledge and they can go out and change the world with their audiences, it was a really fulfilling opportunity for us, right? Um, and so I think that that idea that we could help people, a lot of people through creators, and also it was rooted in data, made it really simple for people to still believe, right? And so I was able to bring more people on with that message, right? Of, hey, it does, you don't have to just believe in this brand building exercise. There's some data here that would help you understand it. And you're going to help people in a really significant way. And so when we, and then we, when we went back into hiring more people, I was much more methodical about it. I, I went much slower. I know we're at 125 people today, but you know, the fir- the series A and the series B were, I think we were at 11 people just at the end of 2021, right? So the first two years, wow. we, we really didn't scale on people. We worked really hard. But I made sure that one, I, I never slept in the office ever again. I, I stayed clear. Two, I started to really invest in myself around having coaching and getting people's outside perspective. Um, just the way I did when I was a kid with my uncle and others, I was hearing other people's stories and I was bringing that to my, to my journey. And so, yeah, we fast forward with that kind of methodical approach, continuing to prove, believing in the, in the, um, in the in the value that we were handing up that we were giving to creators we were able to get here um and and doing really well now let me ask you this imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of spotter is fully realized what does that world look like yeah that world is really exciting um uh, i mean it's something obviously i dream about all the time the full vision of spotter is where we're not just capital for creators, but we're the knowledge that allows creators to succeed. And that's across many platforms and across many different types of businesses. We're starting with YouTube because it's where a lot of creators make a lot of money. Um, And other platforms don't really provide that. But 10 years from now, I don't think there's any reason why we wouldn't look back and go, we've deployed a half a trillion dollars to creators and help them through their journey, whether they were starting off as just a brand new full-time creator and had no people, all the way to what we call enterprise creators who have multiple businesses that are driving revenue to them, which allows them to have freedom in their creativity and, and, and change the world. So we talk about change the world a lot. Um, and the reason we talk about it is because we don't believe creators fully understand or appreciate that they are changing the world, right? A lot of people, when you say that, go, oh, have you helped solve climate change or poverty or all these really important initiatives, right? And what we say is there's a creator that, uh, that we invested in that was, was doing photography and grew his channel to 10 million subscribers and ultimately changed his programming to show, be family-oriented with him and his daughter and it was so powerful to see that re- strong relationship between a father and a daughter, 
for 10 million subscribers or more to be seeing that on a daily basis can actually really change the world, right? And I think that when I would talk to that creator, they're going, well, I should give to charity and I can get, I'm going, no, no, no. Like you are doing the job of, of influencing families and daughters and fathers and so forth to be better, right? Other people do it through, like one channel wants to say, hey, I want to make the world smile. So that's a comedy channel and, and that is, if people are happier, you're going to have a better world. Um, and so that to me is that the full vision is not only have we provided capital, but we've provided the data and insights, the communal knowledge that we have about how creators invest their money and impact the world to then be funding, you know, millions of creators um, across many different types of medium um, and, and really thriving with them. Um, so yeah, super exciting uh, vision. So imagine if I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time and perhaps I bring you back in time to that moment where you were still studying economics, you know, thinking about a world where you could do a business of your own, you know, having that inspiration from your family. But if you could go back in time and really sit that, you know, younger self and, and tell that younger Aaron one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? Yeah, no, it's it's a great question, and there's so much advice I would give to my younger self. Um, but the one piece of advice that I would definitely give to my younger self is the idea that a highly focused vision is not a limited, a limiting idea, right? That you don't need to have a huge, grand vision of men, of many different businesses to be hugely successful. Actually, the hyper focus that you put it into a business allows you to innovate with inside that business in so many ways, right? So for example, there's no way I would think to provide more than capital to creators if I was trying to provide capital to every single creator in the world right now, right? Because there would be so complex the system that all I could be thinking about was financing. Meanwhile, now that I'm so focused on YouTube creators, I'm actually realizing that bringing YouTube creators helps them learn together and actually leads to more business for us, right? Providing them data and analytics is something that we would never invest in without realizing that, wait a second, if we can help creators grow with our capital, they'll work more often with us. So it's that combination. And I think the one other thing I would say to my you know, young self is, I used to think that I had a mind, I have a mind that probably is very similar to other entrepreneurs and that you kind of what I call like future trip or play multidimensional chess, right? Where you're going, hey, what's the worst scenario that could happen? What's the best scenario that can happen, right? What's the other scenarios that can happen? And I used to think of it as very taxing, a thought process. But what I realized is that, you know, when I was doing that as a kid versus doing it now, now it ha actually prepares me for all the situations I might, I might face and not have to be overwhelmed by those situations, right? Because I've already kind of thought through Hey, how would I behave if if things didn't go well today or this month or this year? Um, and especially in a time like this, right, where you're going, there's so many different factors that I, I actually sit and think through those things. Hey, if the economy gets worse, if I have to let go of my employees, if I have, how do I keep those employees if the economy gets worse? Um, that it's prepared me. There's a, a mountain climber that once that, um, oh, Jimmy Chin, um, who's the director of Free Solo was saying, hey, what, going through all those scenarios when you go up in the mountain and realizing what your 
perceived risks are and your real risks are, differentiating between those two things is a really powerful instrument. Um, so anyway, I would say to my young self, you know, realize that your superpower is your ability to think through a lot of scenarios and don't be overwhelmed by them. Actually embrace that, that process um, and stay focused. I love it. So Aaron, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Yeah, you can definitely reach us at contact at spotter.la uh, for email and then also at spotter.com uh, or spotter.la, um, both, both places. And if you're a creator, you definitely want to hit connect with us. We were immediately available for you. And then obviously for anyone else, we'll, we'll get back to you given the right department and so forth. So Amazing. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Oh, thank you so much. It's really a pleasure and I'm, I'm excited that we got to speak. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.